Good day, listeners. This is your host, Michael Martins, with the Martins Critical Review, broadcasting this morning from an overcast start to the day here in West Kelowna, British Columbia. In today's episode, we continue our investigation into the science and policy decisions surrounding the Earth's ever-changing climate, and provide clear evidence and examples in direct opposition to the bogus mainstream narrative. Joining us today is Dr. Benny Pizer. Dr. Pizer is the director of the London-based Global Warming Policy Foundation. He has written extensively on domestic and international climate policy, with a particular focus on how climate change is portrayed as a potential disaster and how we can respond to that. A 10-kilometer-wide asteroid, Minor Planet 7107 Pizer, was named in his honor by the International Astronomical Union. The GWPF describes its mission as being as being to bring reason, integrity, and balance to a debate that has become seriously unbalanced, irrationally alarmist, and all too often depressingly intolerant. Their main focus is to analyze global warming policies and its economic or other implications. Their aim is to provide the most robust and reliable economic advice and analysis. Dr. Pizer, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for your time today. It's a real honor to be able to speak with you. Thanks for having me. Excellent. So I'd like to begin today's conversation with a simple question regarding the origins of climate alarmism. How did this movement begin and who initially invented and promoted this concept? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, up, I mean, from a historical perspective, um, for most of the last 200 years or so, scientists believe that the terrestrial climate uh, is fairly stable and that the changes are very minute and very gradual and nothing really seriously changes. Uh, this had changed this view of a kind of stable and benign terrestrial climate only changed in the last 50 years or so. Um, first, of course, the concern was in the 70s that because of human pollution, air pollution in particular, uh, as a result of industrialization, there could be kind of so much atmospheric smog and, and pollution that um, perhaps we might enter into some kind of ice age uh, as we block out, you know, the sun uh, through through pollution. That was initially a worry in the 70s. So, so, so you know, real pollution causing some kind of climatic uh, disaster. And um, it, it coincided, coincided with a period between uh, the mid 40s and the mid 70s of a slight uh, cooling of global temperatures. And some scientists thought that this was a kind of possibly longer term trend. And they, you know, they extrapolated that if th that cooling continues for another 50 years, it could tip into some kind of ice age. And that only changed when global temperatures began to warm, go up again in the 80s. And as temperatures went up, uh, gradually, steadily, more and more scientists now anticipated uh, that this was driven by our, uh, not by our pollution, air pollution, but by our emissions of carbon dioxide. 
which which we release when we burn fossil fuels in particular. And so the clear correlation between our emissions, which have been going up for you know, the last 150, 200 years, and the rise in temperature since the 1980s was made. And the extrapolation then, if we continue to emit that CO2, global temperatures will continue to rise and perhaps even accelerate to ever warmer temperatures. That's a kind of very, very short history um, of what happened. And of course, in both cases, uh, both in terms of the cooling scare, as, as much as uh, more so with the warming scare, there were always scientists who exaggerated the actual observation of what we have experienced in terms of warming, which is really very, very slow and very gradual and made predictions of disastrous global warming sometime in the future. Yes. Okay, great. And then, of course, uh, 1990 rolls around and we have the IPCC's uh, first alarmist prediction. Um, have any of those predictions uh, dating backwards? Can we look back in time and, and do they have an accuracy record uh, attached with any of their reporting? Yes and no. Of course, um, the IPCC from the very beginning uh, predicted additional warming, and that has indeed happened. Um, whereas some climate skeptics predict the cooling, that hasn't happened. So they were wrong, and the IPCC on that uh, were right, by and large. But the, wh where they were wrong was to anticipate a much faster warming than the warming we've seen. So the first report by the IPCC predicted a warming of 03 Excuse me. Yes. Um, the IPCC in its first report uh, predicted a warming of uh, a de decadal warming. So every 10 years, a warming of 0.3 degrees Celsius. Um, and if we look back over the last uh, 30 years, so since the start of the IPCC and its first prediction, what actually has happened is the warming is about half of what they predicted or two-thirds of what they predicted, definitely less than their prediction, which is good news because it means the warming is much slower than most models predicted. And so it's not as, uh, it's not accelerating and it's not as um, aggressive or as strong as the models predict. And uh, of course, also their uh, sea level rise predictions have also been inaccurate. Uh, they overshot those considerations as well, I understand. Uh, well, they every report had to adjust to reality. Sea level rise really hasn't changed that much in the last 30 years. It's still somewhere between two to three millimeters per year. So it is very, very gradual, um, it's very slow. Uh, most communities are able to deal with that, uh, to strengthen their coastal protection. Some areas undoubtedly will uh, have to be given up. Other areas are growing 
because we know that, you know, geologically speaking, some land is sinking, other land is rising. So there are other factors other than uh, sea level that affects uh, the land area. Um, by and large, uh, global reviews of land exposure or coastal uh, land exposure shows that there is more land gained in the last 30 years than lost. It's nothing to do with sea level rise, more to do with geological factors. And, and that's uh, still the isostatic rebalancing uh, from the last ice age, I take it. Partly, partly, yeah. yes. But there are, you know, uh, there are just geological factors all over the world that affect the, the continental plates. Excellent. Okay. And then, so, you know, are we experiencing then a climate crisis uh, as, as the IPCC would like us to believe, or is this a climate delusion? Well, this is the way they frame it. Um, the, it it's, you know, the question is, what, is, what do you call a crisis? If compared, let's put it in a context, compared to 100 years ago, about 98% um, of people affected or killed by climate-related disasters have been saved. In other words, there are 98% less people affected by weather-related disasters than they were 100 years ago. And that ha has nothing to do really with whether some storms or droughts or floods have become stronger or weaker. It has more to do with the fact that we are more developed and if you, you know, just think about the U.S. 100 years ago, a lot of poor families living in, in wooden houses that wouldn't be able to withstand a hurricane. The same hurricane today, uh, first of all, you can see it on satellite approaching, so you can tell people to prepare, to move away, or to strengthen their homes. So regardless of the thorny issue of whether or not there are more disasters today than 100 years ago, which, you know, uh, is, is highly contentious. Um, regardless of this, we are less exposed to natural disasters and weather disasters because we have become more resilient. And so the best medicine, if you want particularly to help people in less developed countries to deal with uh, weather-related disasters, is to develop and to make them as well off as we are, because then they will be able to sustain a drought or a flood. Think about the US. In any given year, half of the US is in a drought condition, right? Half of the agricultural lands are affected by drought. Does it really make a big difference? It doesn't, because the US know the technology, they have the, the farmers have the technology, the knowledge, uh, the watering and so on to deal with drought. Um, that's what development brings you, more resilience. And that, in my view, is the best approach to dealing with climate change, is to make communities more resilient and better prepared uh, for whatever 
might happen in the next few decades. Interesting. Uh, I recently had Dr. Willie Soon on the program, and uh, he has he doesn't uh, mix words in terms of his uh, opinion of the IPCC and their cartoon science. Um, maybe even going to as far as to say that they're manipulating data in terms of producing their temperature curves. Uh, do you share those opinions, or are you a bit more uh, uh, give the IPCC a bit more credit? <laughs> I certainly think there is a institutional problem within the IPCC. And the problem is that there is no um, proper scrutiny. There is no proper um, weighing up of the pros and the cons of the evidence. What you have is a lot of very committed scientists who are more or less all in the same camp. And when they review the literature, the scientific literature, what happens far too often is they pick those papers that they like and they ignore the papers that they don't like. Instead of reviewing the whole shebang and saying, look, there are you know papers saying this and papers coming to a different uh, result and this is the you know the full spectrum of scientific research they tend to present just one picture and the reason why they are doing that is a political think about back in the 1990s when uh, george bush was president in the us um, the politicians often used scientific uncertainty to say well look even the scientists don't know exactly is it a problem is not a problem is it serious not so if they can't really decide if it's a problem why should we rush into these costly policies so the scientists realize that being honest and saying look there are these uncertainties will be used by politicians to delay policies. And so the scientists decided that on balance, it's better to suppress any hint of uncertainty and claim that the science is settled and we all know exactly what it is and it is a sign and it's crisis to press and to push the politicians into taking actions and they have succeeded in doing so. Mm. So a, a bit of confirmation bias there, and now they are, you know, it's maybe become they're, they're uh, you know, almost preaching to the choir. They don't, uh, they don't want to hear the other dissenting opinions. Uh, it just it makes their predictions messy and uh, weakens and weakens the it, effect. Yes, it and it it it, it weakens the pressure on governments. As I said, they realize that any admission of uncertainty or balance or, you know, uh, he says, she says, uh, you know, um, the, all these possible uncertainties, which are normal in science. Yes. Every scientist knows that they are, and they are particularly normal in the, the more complex the science, the, the more uncertainty there is, that, that everyone knows, but it's inconvenient because it gives politicians the tool and the, the ammunition to say, look, 
there are these uncertainties, so perhaps we shouldn't uh, put in place these costly policies. So it's a it's a tactical move by scientists who are concerned that politicians can uh, abuse their admission of uncertainty. Yeah, and of course, in in uh, with the uh, release of Dr. Soon's latest paper on the total solar irradiance's effect on climate. Uh, you know, for any any respectable scientist to d deny the effect of the sun on the climate system somewhat uh, relegates you to cartoon science, because clearly, as anyone in the northern hemisphere, as you as we experience seasons with the difference in solar solar irradiance, if the output of the sun changes over time, there has to have an effect to climate. I think that's a, a pretty reasonable. Uh, approximation and certainly i think willie has uh, come up with some pretty good evidence in his latest paper <laughs> yeah well yes and no because uh, of course it's a, a thorny issue because the mainstream climate scientists will say look the solar activity changes you know regularly you have the solar cycles and the sunspot cycles and there's no evidence that any of that has any effect on the warming trend. You would expect that to have an effect on the trend. It doesn't have an effect. So therefore, that direct solar, these changes, the direct changes in solar activity, we can't see any effects uh, on the warming trend. So it's a, um, in my view, uh, the jury is still out. I, I don't discount it. But um, people who make strong claims about the sun being the main driver of climate change are facing quite stiff opposition. And the evidence, uh, I think, is not clear cut. There are others who don't, who are suggesting kind of indirect effects on the climate, mainly the effect of changes to, in solar activity on cloud cover. Um, it's a different theory. Again, I think the jury is still out. Personally, I don't think there is that that issue is entirely settled. I'm confident that our emissions of CO2 into the atmosphere has, you know, all things being equal, has an effect uh, on the warming. How much of an effect, I think, is a big question. To quantify that would require that we fully understand the natural factors of climate change. And I doubt that we are, you know, knowledgeable at this point of time into all the natural uh, countless uh, aspects of natural climate variability. So without that full knowledge, it's difficult to quantify how much our uh, anthropogenic contribution is to climate change. Yeah, yeah, that, that's well said. And, and of course, the, the climate system is so complex uh, to, to single out a single factor, whether it's CO2 or solar irradiance, I think is, is uh, unwise and, and unscientific. Yeah. So let, let's move on to the next section here, which is uh, more into a policy uh, uh, side of things. And in your opinion, is the global green movement and its demand for unreliable non-fossil fuel based energy one of the greatest transfers of wealth from the poor to rich in modern history? Yeah, undoubtedly. Uh, of course, what we are witnessing is a move, in particular in the Western world, uh, from cheap, reliable sources of energy to unreliable, intermittent and more expensive forms of energy. 
And that is a very regressive move because it is being paid uh, by uh, ordinary taxpayers or energy bill payers to investors in these green <clears throat> industries, mainly very well off uh, individuals and companies. So people have to pay more to keep their homes warm uh, or to have electricity, to have light uh, in their homes than they used to. And of course that hits the uh, poor and, and less well-off most. So it's a very re regressive policy that hurts the vulnerable most. And of course, uh, people in the developing world are particularly affected uh, if they are not allowed to uh, um, exploit and use their own resources. Sure. And so let's take a moment then to sort of dig into some of these policies within the EU, um, which, you know, really are, uh, it's now a war against, uh, you know, cheap, reliable, plentiful energy towards a, a shift towards these unreliable, expensive, and often Chinese manufactured uh, renewable energy sources. Um, you know, I guess one of the biggest issues has been a massive increase in the energy cost. Um, can you dig into some details there in terms of the effect on the economy uh, and the socioeconomic uh, results of this in, in Europe? Well, the first direct effect of these policies is that um, any manufacturer, any industry that uses uh, a lot of energy, so the energy intensive industries, they've all moved out of Europe and they are moving to places where energy is cheap and regulations are low. And uh, that is mainly Asia, China in particular, uh, but in recent years also the US because of the cheap shale gas. So any manufacturer who uses a lot of energy cannot survive in Europe anymore unless they are heavily subsidized by taxpayers. And what that means is that the Europeans can claim to be green because instead of producing their own goods, they're shifting a lot of that manufacturing to other parts of the world. And then they simply import the products and claim that they've reduced all, you know, all their emissions uh, while uh, consuming the products used, uh, you know, manufactured with high uh, carbon footprints. So it's a bit of a con because the Europeans are still using and consuming the very goods they no longer produce. And, and of course, the costs are higher, uh, the jobs are gone, and the claims that uh, emissions have gone down is not really credible because the emissions have just shifted to other locations in the world. So the emissions are still rising. It's just not rising in Europe, but the atmosphere doesn't care whether the emissions are produced and generated in Europe or whether they're generated in China. Uh, so it's a kind of green virtue signaling, with, signaling without any significant, any effects, uh, perhaps even worse effects, because we know that a lot of uh, factories in China and other parts of Asia are less efficient and much more polluting than they are in uh, developed countries. Yeah, I mean, that's, that situation sounds very similar to what's happened in Canada with our uh, oil sands, uh, that, you know, the, the, the virtue signaling green organizations uh, are screaming, you know, alarm. And yet, you know, now we're bringing 
uh, you know, foreign oil in uh, to, to, to run our country, which and the, and the same thing now for America, where, you know, we have a domestic, highly regulated uh, uh, in industry here. And now we're shifting that production elsewhere where there may be less environmental regulations and, and other pollution, uh, you know, other than and CO2 going on. And so, uh, and back to Europe for a moment now, I mean, this is having a, an impact in terms of the economic output uh, for the EU, as well as a, a reduction in the share of global wealth. Um, can you quantify some of those figures for us over, let's say, the last 20 years? Well, the, the share of global trade in Europe has uh, dropped dramatically. Uh, Europe is an economically declining continent. Um, other parts of the world are growing much faster. Um, Europe um, is suffering economically. Uh, energy prices have risen significantly. And uh, the promise of green jobs uh, haven't materialized because it's obviously much cheaper to produce uh, solar panels and wind turbines in cheap labor, cheap energy countries. So a lot of these industries have closed down in Europe or moving uh, to Asia or incidentally to the US again uh, because of cheap energy in the US. Think about it, uh, energy in the US is, is, is about a quarter. The price of energy is about a quarter of the price of energy in Europe. So any company that needs cheap energy cannot afford to uh, cannot be competitive in Europe anymore, the, which is why, you know, everyone says, oh, we have to move to a service uh, economy. Uh, we don't need to produce anything. We don't need to manufacture anything. We can just have banks and, and IT. <laughs> um, well, good luck with that. Um, so the consequences are a declining economy, um, uncompetitive by and large, growing energy poverty and poverty in general. Um, yeah, what else? Uh, that basically sums up the actual result of utopian green thinking, because we're obviously promised over the last 30 years that the green economy will be the third industrial revolution, that we will be the powerhouse of green technologies. We will export all these wind turbines and solar farms to the rest of the world, ignoring that, of course, China can produce for half the price the technologies we were promised we would export to the world. So instead of exporting these technologies, we are faced with a huge import factor uh, making us not only dependent on Russian gas and, 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 and Russian coal and oil, but also Chinese green technologies. Interesting. And uh, the, the kilowatt per hour rate is, is what, 36 uh, cents euro or something in that ra uh, range for Germany presently, is that correct? Um, you mean the electricity or the gas price? What are you talking about? Uh, sorry, yes, the, uh, the, the electricity price in, in Germany. Um, I, top of my head, I don't know. But as I said, um, energy prices in general are roughly four times 
the energy price in the US. I'm not familiar with the Canadian situation, but it's four times, between three and four times as expensive uh, as it is in the, currently uh, in the US. Yes, yeah. I mean, uh, Canadians probably pay somewhere between nine and fifteen cents a kilowatt hour, and then uh, in 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 America, uh, other than California, New York, and some of the, the the more populated states, you know, the average price is around ten, eleven cents a kilowatt. So, uh, you know, if, it's so very it's difficult. Roughly forty. Yeah, on average, yeah, 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 yeah. So it's about yeah. four times that. And then before we move on from this section here, you, you sort of mentioned the, the increasing poverty and energy poverty within Europe. Um, and I, I re recall reading some articles there where there's actually millions of people in Europe uh, that are either on the verge of having their power or gas disconnected uh, because of uh, bills that are in arrears. Uh, just just explore that topic a bit for us. Well, the situation has been bad in recent years, but it's getting much worse because of the current energy crisis. Um, natural gas prices have gone up by 300% in recent weeks. Wow. Uh, energy companies are, many, many energy companies are going bankrupt. Uh, other energy companies are reluctant to take on new uh, consumers. Uh, they are, uh, facing the same situation you know the bigger companies they have hedged uh, their their gas prices for five six months the smaller ones haven't so they can't afford these um, uh, market prices anymore and 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 going under but the large ones will face the same problem perhaps in a couple of months or three months when the price their hedge price comes to an end so we are facing a huge energy crisis no one knows how this is going to end particularly not if we have cold winter which is kind of irony yes we might find this winter to be particularly cold and long and gas prices extremely costly so what it means is we will have a winter of discontent in all likelihood huge um, protests and millions of households struggling to keep their homes warm and and heat their homes and, and all the while you've got uh, coal and natural gas uh, sitting in eastern europe uh, which could be developed uh, under a different uh, different policy regime oh britain we're sitting on a gold mine of one of the biggest shale basins in the world yeah. uh, okay uh, didn't know that where and and the conservative government uh, put a moratorium on fracking uh, because some green campaigners have, you know, and, and the Russians together, the Greens and the Russians have campaigned against shale gas. Surprise, surprise. But we're sitting on this gold mine of huge shale reserves, which we can't touch. Mm. So this is a completely self-inflicted energy crisis um, because there's not a lack of natural gas. There's a lack of political will to extract it. Well, the it's, this situation, you are energy rich, much more so than we are, and you can't sell it to anyone because you don't have the pipelines. Well, yeah, yeah. it's a political crisis, not an energy crisis. Yes, yes. And uh, certainly the predictions for this winter uh, in Europe are that it is likely to be a very long and cold winter. So perhaps 
some pain is required for these uh, political organizations to uh, begin to redress these policies. Well, required. I wouldn't say it's required, but it might come to that um, because tens of thousands of people will die. Uh, in Britain, in an average winter, somewhere between 30 and 40,000 people die from cold, so-called winter excess deaths. Uh, in a particular cold winter with very high energy prices, you can expect those numbers to go up significantly. I mean, 10 times more people die from cold anyhow than they uh, die from uh, heat waves. Uh, people sure. forget, you know, whenever you see the news and there's a, uh, a heat wave somewhere in Europe, then, uh, you know, the, the, the news channels are full and, and the, the, the panic is enormous. But people don't realize that 10 times more people die in the winter than they die in the summer. So yes. um, we are expecting a, also a cold uh, ocean cycle called La Nina that might in, you know, uh, make the situation worse in the winter. If it emerges, uh, La Nina tend to go with colder temperatures. So it could be a very bad and a very hard winter for Europeans. Uh, not many governments are likely to survive a very harsh winter. Uh, that's my uh, estimate. Uh, there will be uproar and upheaval if families can't heat their homes. Well, and, you know, perhaps we need a bit of that pain to uh, start to shift some of these policies away from the alarmist movement to uh, reality. I hope we don't. I hope, uh, but it, it might come to that. Uh, yes. I'm not a cynic. Uh, I, I wouldn't wish anyone a harsh and, and particularly not poor families who can't afford to heat their homes. Yes, uh, it's... it might come to that. Uh, and it looks very bad. Because this is, a, as I said, a self-inflicted energy crisis that is completely unnecessary, completely due to um, governments uh, either shutting down, banning uh, gas and oil extraction, or making it uh, so difficult through regulation and uh, carbon taxes that uh, Europe is simply dependent on others to provide them with gas and of course they are using it to the full extent and uh, Russia is blackmailing Europe and uh, Europe is completely dependent on goodwill of Mr. Putin and that's the situation we're in. Yeah, that, that's a, a difficult position to be in for sure. Yeah. So you, you mentioned the, the, these green jobs and the green economy, which was sort of promised as part of these policies. Uh, what's the present trend in the EU now in terms of uh, uh, the renewables capacity being uh, constructed? Are, are we increasing the number of, of kilowatts or gigawatts in production or, or is that kind of... Yes. It is increasing, still increasing, not in every country, in most countries. But uh, most of these renewable technologies come, are no longer produced. In it's far too you know, expensive <laughs> to produce uh, these in Europe. They are outsourced to Asian countries, many in China, Korea, other Asian countries. Uh, so yes, we are basically helping to create lots of green jobs in Asia. Um, Today or yesterday, um, 
Vesta, one of the biggest European turbine wind turbine makers, just announced they're closing three European uh, turbine factories and moving them to Asia. Yeah, which which doesn't uh, doesn't help doesn't create any difference for the economic uh, outcomes of Europe. The more people will fall into that uh, poverty class if that trend continues. You simply can't produce these things in Europe anymore because you have high labor costs, high energy costs. So and and uh, you know these wind companies have promised governments that their costs will come down. You know they've pledged that wind and renewables will the cost will come down well they can only come down if at all is if you produce them dirt cheap by slave labor in china or you know some kind of cheap uh, unregulated countries that's perhaps a way of bringing down cost uh, and even that hasn't really resulted in much cost reduction because you have to now go to ever deeper locations in the ocean which makes wind turbines more expensive because the locations are more difficult. All the easy windy places have been covered. Now you have to find spots that are much more difficult to place the wind turbines. So the costs are actually rising for these new uh, locations because they are more difficult um, to, to, to manage. And then the, the last uh, question in this segment is, is how, how do the, the subsidies uh, work for these. I mean, it's, it's to me, it sounds like a lot of this. Uh, again, the the implementation uh, or the development of these wind farms and solar farms really is on the back of the consumer uh, through uh, through subsidies, and this is also part of this transfer of of wealth from the average person to the uh, upper upper wealthy category. Yeah, absolutely. The Al Gore's and the Bill Gates and so on of the world who have heavily invested in these industries. Um, yes, the way it works is that uh, about 20% of the average energy bill now goes to these green investors. Um, so 20, roughly 20% of your energy bill is subsidies going to green investors um, so that they can build these quite costly projects. Um, we're talking here hundreds of billions every year. In Britain alone, it's about 10 billion pounds a year. In Germany, it's about 35 billion euros a year. So we're talking, you know, perhaps 100 to 150 billion uh, euros um, per year in money that the average consumer has to spend for the green lobby to build their nice wind turbines. Yeah, that's a that's an astronomical number. Yeah, it is. We're talking astronomical numbers here. Yeah, yeah. And it so up. it only goes up. It never goes down. You know, you you hear, oh, we don't need these things are now so cheap. They are cheaper than coal. They're cheaper than gas, and they don't need any subsidies anymore. They are so cheap. Yeah, but then when you ask them, they say, ah, well, without subsidies, we can't actually expand. So. These subsidies never end. Sure. Well, what, once uh, you're once you're filling someone's pocket, they're not going to say no to the continuing filling of their pocket. I mean, that's uh, human nature. So, what was what must North America then learn from this U European experience before we plunge headlong into the same the same mistakes? Yeah, absolutely. So, I, I don't think uh, politicians ever learn. Um, 
I'm not sure how this is going to pan out. My own view is that at some point it will come crushing down. At some point it will become simply unaffordable, economically and politically unsustainable. Um, there's a pain threshold uh, when that is reached and people can no longer afford to heat their homes in winter, I think that's when the proverbial will hit the fan. Um, where this threshold lies and when it will be reached, no one knows, but it can happen very quickly. Yeah, and it sounds like in Europe we're rapidly approaching that uh, that magical transition point. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So the more I study this entire situation, the more concerned I become about, uh, you know, Agenda 2030 and the global reset. And there seems to be a shift uh, in, in the power base from the West uh, towards the technocratic stronghold in the East. Um, any, any thoughts on, on, on this movement of, of wealth and, and uh, sort of the, the control of the energy industry? Um. Well, apart from the utopian thinking among Western leaders, um, which is completely detached from reality, in my view, um, there is a general shift from the West to the East, and that has to is a twofold shift. One is a shift simply demographically. Uh, Europe is a aging, shrinking demographic place. Most Western nations are rapidly aging, shrinking societies, uh, whereas um, many other parts of the world, particularly Africa, is uh, growing rapidly. So you have a, a very significant shift in um, demographics, but you also have a shift in technology and, and capability. Um, many Asian countries are, have, I mean, China is, I think, churning out tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of technicians and engineers and IT experts every year, whereas many European students, you know, are studying uh, gender relations and have you. So there is a clear shift also in technological expertise from the old world to, you know, the emerging nations. So you have a geopolitical, a demographic, a technological shift. We just have to realize that this shift is happening and whether the West and the US in particular has the strength and the understanding and the willingness to actually um, and the willingness to compete in a competing world remains to be seen Com remains to be seen I'm, I'm, I'm not a, a determinist or a pessimist but the challenge is there and countries that give up competition and just uh, hope for the best uh, will fall back and it's nothing new. It has happened in the past. We've had big civilizations in the past who are all, um, you know, declined and, and, and become shadows of themselves. There's no guarantee that the European civilization will not become or relegated to the second 
worlds in decades to come. There's no guarantee whatsoever. And other parts of the world will uh, become vibrant economies, vibrant civilizations, whether it's India, China as well. Other Asian countries have the uh, capability to become very vibrant societies, vibrant civilizations. And it's up to us to decide whether we want to compete or whether we want to simply give in and say, well, we've had, you know, our peak in the last two, three hundred years, and now it's for others to take over and we'll just retire into our retirement homes <laughs> and hope that there's tension. With, with several blankets. So when I review uh, the, the new EU Green Deal and, uh, and combine that then with, uh, you know, recent Nature article talking about personal carbon allowances and, and a, you know, sort of almost a social credit style system, I'm quite alarmed by that. Uh, what are your thoughts when you, when you go through these? Anything is possible in this day and age. Uh, we've almost seen everything already during the COVID crisis. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, some governments are trying to copy similar methods in a so-called climate emergency. You know, in an emergency, once you declare an emergency, basically the normal rules of democratic uh, checks and balances are uh, off the table. Um, that's why people want to declare an emergency because then you can basically uh, do what you want without any checks and balances. So as far as I'm concerned, anything is possible, whether or not it's going to happen, we'll, we'll have to wait and see, because as I said, there is no public appetite uh, in a world where people can't uh, heat their homes or <laughs> light their uh, rooms uh, for this kind of authoritarian um, nonsense. But We've all seen it before. History is full of these examples and human nature is prey to scaremongering. So I'm not ruling it out. Um, as I said, anything is possible. The West is significantly weakened. Its democratic values and traditions are a shadow of what they used to be. People uh, who try to protect them are um, really at the margins of debate. Most governments love authoritarian structures much more because then no one needs to answer awkward questions and so on. So um, who knows? We'll have to wait and see how European countries and Britain, Canada and the US, the English-speaking countries in particular, which have a very long tradition of uh, fighting for uh, freedom and personal freedoms, how they will cope with the stress uh, in the next few decades. But as I said, I wouldn't rule out anything. Yeah, and, and certainly we've also heard calls um, for uh, climate emergency lockdowns, and you know the 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 alarmists are saying you know we're seeing a, a suspension in the rise in CO two levels, and this is a good thing, so we should keep people locked down in their homes uh, until the climate emergency goes away. Which you know the, these are madness. I mean, people need to have a, an existence outside of uh, essentially being uh, in their home home prison, right? 
Well, as I said, uh, the calls are there, the, the campaign groups are there, uh, whether they will succeed. I mean, the only interesting development in recent years is that there is a growing counter movement uh, that realizes that their freedoms are being threatened. Uh, but who knows how this uh, is, you know, the Western societies are deeply divided on all these issues and yes. no one knows how this is going to pan out. Yes, yes. And uh, if we look at the Paris Climate Accord for a moment, why would the Western nations even enter into this agreement, uh, which you know obviously limits our economic potential and allows for nearly limitless growth, uh, particularly of China and Russia's economy uh, with emissions continuing as they are? It's a difficult question. Um, my guess is most governments are badly advised by um, civil servants and green lobbyists telling them that this is the future that um, you know i mean in europe you can in a way understand the kind of green agenda because the europeans are basically what they're saying is look we've had 200 years of cheap oil and gas and, and coal this is we've now depleted most of it so we should tell every other part of the world where they still have plenty of that stuff to get rid of it so that they don't outcompete us on cheap energy. So they want a kind of level playing field because they, the Europe has, you know, basically Europe developed its wealth on the back of cheap fossil fuels. So they don't want others to uh, follow in their footsteps now that they've basically depleted uh, much of it. Although I said before, they weren't aware that they were still sitting on huge resources. That's a, a, a new realization. Um, so it's it's a difficult, uh, you know, why are Europeans or Westerners? Uh, I think they truly believe they are facing a climate disaster. I think most political leaders do are infected by this uh, modern doomsday cult. They really think that they have to save the planet. They really think disaster is around the corner and that no cost, even if it's their economic downfall, um, will prevent them from being seen as savior of the planet. Everyone wants to save the planet. No one wants to save their economy, it would appear. Right. And of course, as you, you eloquently stated earlier, really what's happening with these policies is we are shifting these emissions offshore. Uh, they, they're not going away. Uh, there's no net reduction. We're simply just shifting those emissions and, you know, the atmosphere doesn't care whether it's all it's a closed system. And, and the, you can see if you look at the CO2 levels in the atmosphere, they are steadily going up. There's no hint, no indication of a slowdown or a reduction. They are going up and they will go up for decades to come. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I wonder if you happened to hear uh, Biden's address to the UN General Assembly yesterday and his pledge to offer $100 billion towards developing nations' uh, climate actions. Did you, did you catch that yesterday? I think he offered $100 billion. I think he offered $10 billion. <laughs> Was it? Okay, okay. I thought it was, was $100 billion. Said, yeah. He will double, the U.S. will double uh, its funding of its competitors, uh, I think from 5 billion to 10 billion. Uh, 
um, but other countries still have to make a similar pledge. Of course, these countries have money as if there's no tomorrow. As we know, um, we're, we're all very, you know, sound finances. Uh, we're all, you know, flush. Um, you know, 10 billions here and 10 billions there. What doesn't make a difference if you are trillions indebted, really? Yeah. Yeah. And I guess, you know, really, uh, are those countries best served by this money being spent on solar panels and wind farms? Or would it be more effective? Yeah. You know, fact, any money that is given will have strings attached and mainly saying, we'll give you the money if you buy you know, our products. Uh, yeah. the, very little of that money will actually be used to help communities in the developing world cope with uh, weather extremes, which would make sense, help them to develop. As I said early on, the best way of helping developing countries deal with climate change is make them wealthy so that they can you know, become as resist, uh, resilient as we are. Um, but the opposite is happening. We are basically telling developing countries not to use cheap energy, and therefore we are stifling economic development we're doing exactly the opposite. We're not, not only not helping them, we are actually um, preventing from becoming better prepared to deal with climate change. That's the kind of the um, perverse um, result of these policies that we are hindering poor countries from using their coal, using their gas, using their oil. Uh, we're telling them, okay, we, in the West became rich on the back of that, but you should, you should leave it in the ground. Yeah. Yeah. And of course the develop, you know, spending that money to develop those domestic industries creates much more economic certainty uh, and development for those nations than bringing in products imported from China and, and so forth. So, I mean, it's, it's yet, yet again, uh, another slap in the face to the developing nations. And it won't help them deal with climate change at all. It will just make them dependent on, uh, you know, mainly China and some Western companies that provide them with services and technology. Yes. Anyway, Mart, um, um, Michael, I'm afraid I have to go. Okay, very good. Yeah, we're, we're, we're right at the end here anyway. Um, how can listeners learn more about uh, the GWPF and, uh, and your work? Very easy. Go to the Global Warming Policy Forum website. Global Warming Policy Forum, we have two arms, a charitable arm where we publish our uh, research and a more information and campaigning arm. That's the Global Warming Policy Forum. And that's the website that is regularly updated with all the latest information. And they can also subscribe to our regular free newsletter which uh, is the best newsletter on climate energy policy issues that they can find. Um, it's for free. You can find uh, how it's easy to subscribe on our forum website. Okay, great. I'll uh, include those links in the show notes. And uh, I thank you for your time today. You've uh, brought up some great points. And uh, perhaps we'll, uh, if, I, if I'm able to travel, we'll get down to uh, Vegas there and we'll see you at the, uh, the Heartland uh, Conference. All right. Well, nice talking to you. Very good, sir. You have a great evening. And you. Bye. Bye-bye.